0: Now, I know you were promised last week to talk about money. Um, We're going through a short series about issues Christians face today. Uh, Langs was meant to be speaking about money to us, but he's still on holiday in France. Um, He had car trouble last night. Um, He's flying back later tonight, so he gave me a ring last night. Um, And so we are gonna look at this passage in 1 Kings, which uh, a number of the men who were at the men's convention looked at yesterday. Uh, It was an amazing encouragement. We had a few thousand men, uh, singing, praising to God, hearing his word preached. And our first uh, talk we looked at was this story of Elijah on Mount Carmel. So today, all I'm going to do is I'm just going to talk us through the story uh, and see what God has to say to us today. We learn in this story that God is sovereign. Um, so it's no accident that we're looking at this today and not money. We'll look at money next week. Uh, and that's fine. So we trust that God is sovereign. Um, men, if you are in the room yesterday, please don't switch off. Uh, the majority of this won't be new. It won't be different to what you heard yesterday. Uh, but you may pick up things you didn't yesterday as we let God's word speak to us. So let me pray um, before we dig into this uh, pretty epic story. Uh, Lord we thank you that your word is good uh, and it is true uh, and that we can learn from it Lord. We thank you for these great stories which are true from the Old Testament Lord and we pray now just help us to understand more about who you are, uh, understand more about um, who we are to be as your people and what it looks like to live um, for you uh, and in ways which just point towards you Lord. So we praise you, uh, pray help us to understand your word now uh, and help me to speak it clearly. Amen. Great. Um, As we look at Old Testament narrative, it's worth saying this first. Um, I'm going to be hunting and we're going to be hunting together for the main point of the passage. Please keep it open. Uh, Please look at it. There's going to be loads of other helpful things we see along the way as we go through, things we can learn. Um, But as we look at this Old Testament passage, we're going to be looking for what is the one main thing God wants us to get. So we're going to look through the passage, read it through, uh, and then we're going to circle back to that main point at the end and as we land. As Terry helpfully said, we're in One Kings. Uh, We're in around the ninth century BC, um, but there's a little bit of debate around that. Uh, What's happened is David, King David, the David we often see in the Psalms, he's united the tribes of Israel. uh, That God promised then that there'd be a king from David's line who would come, a messianic king. He would establish God's kingdom over the nations, and he'd fulfill the promises to Abraham. That was the king who was promised. And the Book of Kings, it was originally one book, one and two kings, tells the story of a long line of kings who came after David. None of them lived up to that promise of the Messianic king who would establish God's kingdom over the nations. And in one kings, we come across this king, King Ahab, uh, in our passage at the moment. And at this stage, Israel sadly split into two rival kingdoms, you've got Judah Uh, and you've got Israel, one in the north, one in the south, and we're a long way from a united kingdom under God, a long, long way. Ahab was king in the north, married to the notorious Jezebel, um, and between them, they'd instituted worship of the Canaanite god Baal over the worship of the god in Israel. So that's where we're at, that's what's happened, and it's at this point we then meet Elijah, uh, God's prophet. Prophets, uh, at this stage, they're basically um, what somebody's called covenant watchdogs. They were appointed by God to call out idolatry uh, and injustice, and to call on Israel to be a light to the nations, to call on Israel to repent and to follow God. That was the purpose of Israel, to be God's people. They're not doing that. And Elijah kicks off his relationship with Ahab in 1 Kings 17. If you've got your Bibles, you'll see it there. Right at the start, it says, uh, Elijah the Tishbite, from Tishbe in Gilead said to Ahab, "As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives, whom I serve, there will be neither dew nor rain in the next few years, except at my word." We then have a number of other stories before we get to where we get to in One Kings eighteen today. And at the start of the passage, we see three years have passed. Three years have passed in One Kings eighteen verse one, and God says to Elijah, "Go and present yourself to Ahab, and I will send rain on the land." So Elijah obediently goes. Now, a lack of rain, three years, no rain. um, It's led to a famine. I'm not sure if any of you have been to places where there's been a famine before or a drought. Um, I grew up in southern India. I still vividly remember for a couple of years praying for rain to come. Uh, A lack of rain, it destroys crops. It leads to famine. Um, Our greatest struggle at my school was being limited to three bucket baths a week. It's not too bad. Uh, But for those who are significantly worse off, A lack of water leads to an utter loss of livelihood. No food. Things are not good. And spiritually, things were not good either. It's a reflection of what's going on. We read in the first bit of the chapter that Ahab's wife Jezebel is just casually killing off the Lord's prophets. It's kind of buried in there amongst the story. And she's put a ransom on Elijah's head. But Elijah eventually gets to meet Ahab. And he commands Ahab to gather all the people of Israel together. And this is where we get to this epic showdown. It's one of my favourite stories uh, and it's great to look at it today. We see Elijah ordering Ahab to gather the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah. Baal, god of fertility, god of harvest. Um, in those times, probably the best god if you lived in agricultural land. It's good to be on good terms with the god of the harvest if um, you're in famine and drought. Um, Yahweh, on the other hand, the Lord, uh, the one true God, Uh, was a desert god in many people's minds he came from sinai which is less good in a time of drought and famine to be worshipping him so people have wandered from worshipping the true god but the people gather Baal's prophets gather and when we see Elijah cry out in verse 21 to the people of Israel says here Elijah went before the people and he said how long will you waver between two opinions if the lord is god follow him but if Baal is god follow him That's the showdown we're being given. Baal on one side, the Lord on the other. Now, the translation we've got, the NIV, it's not as good here as the word we have for wavering wavering, is actually the word for limping. Why are you limping between two opinions, Elijah is asking? And the question is, why does Elijah bring up this image of lameness when somebody's worshipping a false god? If we read in verse 26, I'm going to read from the ESV, which has the word lameness back in, but it goes... Verse 25 and 26, They took the bull that was given them. They prepared it and called upon the name of Baal from morning until noon, saying, O Baal, answer us. But there was no voice and no one answered. And they limped around the altar that they had made. Limping is used twice as we hear about false gods. And it's really interesting. What is God trying to teach us here? I think he's saying when you stop worshipping the true God, you will limp. The world may call it dancing, but you're limping. And it's a strong warning here against worshipping false gods. Um, It's a bit ironic today, we were meant to be hearing about um, a god that the world holds up as being the ultimate one often. One which many of us may struggle not to think is the saviour for most of our problems, money. It's a false god. And the question is, what are we in danger of holding up as a god in our lives? What are we limping towards? You see, our, our days are a lot like Elijah's, aren't they? Um, He lived in a day like us where people called evil good and good evil. Uh, We live in a similar time in which people worship a little bit of everything, but not the living God exclusively. Probably know people myself who maybe there's a bit of God, maybe there's some horoscopes in there, maybe there's a bit of pop psychology, a few conspiracy theories, a little bit here and there. We live in really similar times to Elijah's times. And the Israelites were looking to Baal, the God of the harvest, to bring rain. As we're going to see, only God can bring rain. Now, as we move into verse 22, we see something, inc- just, it's just brilliant, isn't it? Incredible odds. Elijah said to them, I am the only one of the Lord's prophets left, but Baal has 450 prophets. Now, 451, not great odds, but the odds God likes. God wants to make it abundantly clear who is God here. Elijah then asks, The two bulls, two sacrifices. And Elijah says in verse 24, what the rules of the game are. Set up your altars, set up your bulls. And then he says in verse 24, you call on the name of your God and I'm going to call the name on the Lord. The God who answers by fire, he is the Lord. Sounds like quite a simple game. And Elijah is down when it comes to the odds. So he asks them to go first. They're on home turf. And this is when it gets very entertaining. In verse 26, We see they took the bull that was given to them and they prepared it. And then they called on the name of Baal from morning until noon. Baal, answer us, they shouted. But there was no response. No one answered. And they danced around and they limped around the altar that they had made. Gets better. They've been doing this about six hours. Halfway through, this crying out, Baal, answer us, we need this fire. We see Elijah begin to mock them. Shout louder, he said. Surely he is a God. Perhaps he's deep in thought or busy or traveling. Maybe he's sleeping and must be awakened. What sort of God is this who needs a rest, who doesn't answer? The word busy is better translated on the toilet. Maybe he is on the toilet. Maybe your God is on the toilet and that is why he's not answering you. He is mocking them and it's tragic and it's hilarious. Can you imagine how shocked the false prophets would have been if Baal actually answered them? (laughs) How many ceremonies have these prophets participated in without hearing so much as a sigh from their revered deity? Verse 29. Midday passed. They continued their frantic prophesying until the time for the evening sacrifice. But there was no response. No one answered. No one paid attention. There is no Baal. Now, Elijah gets to work. First thing he does in verse 30, he rebuilds the altar to the Lord. Remember, the kingdoms are split. Twelve stones representing the twelve tribes of Israel, currently not unified, but in time they will be. And Elijah then prepares his sacrifice. He chops up the wood, chops up the bull, and he lays it on the wood. He's on his own, remember, so he then gets some help. He then asks for water to be poured on top. Remember the rules of the game? Call on your God. Whoever brings fire is God. I'm not a scientist. Um, I just had a lovely barbecue for lunch. There wasn't water in sight. Water and fire do not mix. So, Baal has failed, and now God wants to heighten the disadvantage. It's already 450 to one. Now it's dry wood versus wet wood, and wet bull versus dry bull. Uh, And water is poured on it until it fills this trench, a trench which could hold about 11 kilograms of seed. Again, I don't really know what that means, but it's a pretty big trench. And basically, he just keeps pouring the water on again and again and again until it fills up. And let me take a step back here and state that God loves a disadvantage. It shows him off for who he is, the one true and all-powerful God. Uh, And a challenge for us may be we have no place to complain if we feel we're at a disadvantage. We have God on our side, God with us. If you maybe look at a friend, you'd love to come to know Christ and you feel, I'm really stumped about how they could come to faith. Stop complaining. You have the spirit in you. You have God himself to help with you. If you maybe feel your lot in life has been particularly bleak, your circumstances are too hard for God to turn around, too hard for God to make good out of, stop complaining. You're not at a disadvantage. God is sovereign. He's with us. The odds with God are always in our favour. Verse 37, Elijah calls out, answer me, Lord, answer me, so these people will know that you, Lord, are God and that you are turning their hearts back again. Answer me, Lord, answer me, so these people will know that you, Lord, are God and you are turning their hearts back again. We've been hunting for the, the main point in this passage as I look through this. and I think it lands here in verse 37. We're going to cycle back here, having landed the rest of the story, but this is what Elijah cries out and God answers. He calls out, God answers. The one true God answers with fire. Fire so powerful, it licks up the water which had overflowed into the trench. You see, when God shows up, we see real power. Let's not toy with the God of his power, with the one true God. We need to take him seriously. This God is powerful. He is holy he is righteous and he is powerful he's the main thing he's not something to have on the side for us he's not something to worship once a week when it suits us to come to church he's the main thing when God shows up there is power and the great issue of life is this isn't it will you serve the one true God if you're here today and you don't know Jesus welcome will you serve the one true God or will you serve other gods who don't answer elijah on mount carmel put it like this in the great contest between yahweh on one side baal the god on the other side he says how long will you go limping between two different opinions if the lord is god follow him if baal is god follow him and we've seen categorically that baal is not god we look at maybe other gods we we worship we spend our lives trying to devote time to or things and we go they just don't deliver but god does now, um, before we circle back, as we move on to the rest of the story, verse 38 and onwards, uh, there's an important principle it's worth us knowing. God is always the same. He's the same yesterday, he's the same today, and he's the same forever. But his ways in the world have not always been the same. You may have read this passage and been a bit shocked when we see Elijah killing the 450 prophets of Baal. We see here in the Old Testament, he kills the false prophets. And God is going to kill the prophets, and there's something right in this time about that. God is just. He's deadly serious about sin. He's deadly serious about those who call people away from God. Suffering will always come for unrepentant unrepentant sin. In time, it'll be eternal punishment. And it's the same today for those who don't follow Christ. We need to take sin seriously. We need to deal with it. How do we do that today? Please hear me clearly if you follow Jesus today or not. We deal with our sin and we take it seriously by trusting Jesus with it. Jesus came and he died to take the punishment of a holy God, which is death for those who've rebelled. And he says, if we put our trust in him, and this is the glorious good news of the gospel, if we follow him, God, when he looks on us, instead of seeing our sin, instead of seeing our rebellion, our limping around towards false gods, God sees Jesus, the perfect man who lived and died, in our place. God took sin so seriously that he sent his own son to take the punishment for us. That's how seriously he takes it. In this story, God accepts the sacrifice of Elijah. In the New Testament, we see him accept the sacrifice of Jesus' life. Praise God for that. Now, as we think back to the Old Testament, things were slightly different. In the Old Testament, the people of God were a theocracy. They were ruled by God. They were a single political and ethnic regime. And this is different today, isn't it? We don't live in these times anymore. And in the New Testament, we see how God deals with idolatry differently. He deals with it by calling us to cast out those who promote the worship of false gods in our churches. That's what we see now. We deal with the idolatry in the church today not by execution, but, but by excommunication. Not by execution, but by excommunication. The ending of communion with someone. This is what we've seen in 1 John, isn't it? As we're warned about false teachers. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 12 says, What business is it of mine, this is Paul writing, to judge those outside of the church? Are you not to judge those inside? God will judge those outside. Expel the wicked person from among you. We see God has the right to be the executioner. We don't advance Christianity by killing people, but by dying for people. And this is a massive shift in redemptive history, in the history of how God deals with sin. Still with immense justice, still with real seriousness, but a shift today. It's slightly different. And now we see how God brings rain. How he brings rain. Elijah said to Ahab, go eat and drink. There's the sound of a heavy rain. Verse 42. Ahab went off to eat and drink, but Elijah climbed to the top of Carmel, bent down to the ground and put his face between his knees. He does it through prayer what Elijah's doing seven times he keeps calling out is it there yet I've been praying is it there yet he does it expectantly and it's one of the wonders of prayer isn't it of course God can bring in the rain without this seeming charade but he chooses to use his people he calls them to rely on him calls us to rely on him and the rain then comes praise God and then we see a brilliant contrast right at the end of the passage verse 46 the power of the Lord came on Elijah And tucking his cloak into his belt he ran ahead of ahab all the way to jezreel you don't limp when you follow jesus you don't limp when you follow the one true god you run elijah runs what a story it's one of my favorites but let us drive back in on this main point let's read verses 36 and 37 again we see at the time of the sacrifice the prophet elijah stepped forward and he prayed Lord the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac and Israel, let it be known today that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and have done all these things at your command. Answer me, Lord, answer me so these people will know that you, Lord, are God and that you are turning their hearts back again. It's the main point because Elijah tells us this. He stands before the people. and He says, let it be known today. This is why this is happening. This is why this story is in the Bible. Let what be known? two things he wants to make known. He wants to be loud and clear that you, Lord, are God and that you are turning their hearts back again. Elijah wants the people to know that the Lord, that Yahweh, is God. None of the other God's people were worshipping are truly God's. None of them are worthy of worship. None of the things we worship, apart from God, are worthy of worship. And he wants the people to know that God is the one who turns human hearts to God. God is sovereign over people coming to know him. Elijah is saying, if anyone here, if anyone in Israel has turned to God on account of this miracle, and what a miracle it was, you'd, you'd pray and you'd hope that the people of Israel woke up and saw what was going on. If any of them came to know Jesus because of this, or came to know God because of this, it was not Elijah who did this. It was all God. And it's true, when we look at this passage, we go, wow, God rules over us when it rains. He rules over when fire comes. God rules, but the main point of this passage is God rules in our hearts. If you've turned to God in this room, praise God, God did that. God is sovereign, he's in charge, and this is a real comfort. God is the one who turns men's hearts. The story of Elijah continues into chapter 19. Read it later, it's a great story. But this is slightly bleaker in chapter 19. Elijah flees Israel after what happens as Jezebel threatens his life again. And it's a humbling story. A man who had just seen God set fire to a soaking wet bull covered in water and shows infinite power, he flees flees in fear of Jezebel. God asks him what he's doing. And in chapter 19, you may have it in front of you, verse 14, God says, Elijah, what are you doing? And Elijah goes, I've been very zealous to the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, torn down your altars and put your prophets to death with the sword. I'm the only one left and now they're trying to kill me too. It's humbling to see how quickly Elijah forget. We forget so quickly, don't we? We need to keep remembering that God's in charge. He's the one true God worth worshipping. The New Testament, it picks up the same point in Romans 11. Uh, turn with me if you can to Paul's letter to the church in Rome. I'll get you a page number when I get there myself. Somebody can yell it out if they get there first in the Red Bibles. 1138, page 1138. We see Paul writing to the church in Rome. And in verse one, we see Paul say, I asked then, did God reject his people? Remember what Elijah's saying? I'm the only one left. I'm the only one left. Did God reject his people? By no means. I am an Israelite myself. I'm a descendant of Abraham from the tribe of Benjamin. God did not reject his people whom he foreknew. Don't you know what scripture says in the passage about Elijah? How he appealed to God against Israel. Lord, they've killed your prophets. They've torn down your altars. I am the only one left and they're trying to kill me. What was God's answer to him? I've reserved for myself 7,000 who have not bowed the knee to Baal. You see what God says in response to Elijah? When Elijah is fearful, we see the reminder that God does not abandon his people. God is sovereign. He's in charge and he does not abandon his people. I have kept them, it says. God kept his people. There's a remnant chosen by grace, chosen by God. And this is the case in every generation. There's a remnant chosen by God. God rules my heart. God rules your heart. He is the one who's in charge. He is sovereign. And I think it's, it's a real comfort, isn't it, when I think of my friends who don't know Jesus. Many of them have heard the gospel, who I've told about Jesus. God rules their hearts, and he can change their hearts. Where did my faith come from? From me. From me suddenly getting wise to it, and suddenly going, oh, I understand this now. No, God did that. When did I, when did you decide that following Jesus was the best way? God did that. And this is why we praise God. How could we praise God if we were the people who did something? If I was the one who wisely made my own personal decision to follow Jesus, God is the one who saves. He is the one who turns hearts towards him. It's not a comfort if we ascribe sovereignty in this world to man. It really isn't. We heard it in Hell's prayers. John Piper, in one of his books about it, says this. He says, sometimes we need to be reminded by God himself there are no limits to his rule. We need to hear from him that he is sovereign over the whole world and everything that happens in it. We need his own reminder that he is never helpless, never frustrated, and never at a loss. We need his assurance that he reigns over ISIS. He reigns over terrorism, over Syria, Russia, China, India, Nigeria, France, Myanmar, Saudi Arabia, and the United States of America. Every nation, every people, Britain's not in there. He reigns over us every nation, every people, every language, every tribe, every chief, every president, king, premier, prime minister, politician, great or small, God rules. God's sovereignty is a comfort. And as we close, let it be a comfort and a challenge to us. I think God's sovereignty leads to two things here. I think it leads to hope-filled prayer. It leads to prayer for God in Christ to do what only he can do. Paul says in Romans 10, it's my heart's desire and prayer to God that they may be saved. Some people say, why pray if God is sovereign? I'd answer, why pray if he isn't? I pray for people and for situations and we pray for them here at church because we believe God is in charge and he can do something. When Elijah was praying for rain, he prayed because he knew God was sovereign over it all. Maybe think about your families. If you're a parent, think about your children. As we see that God is sovereign, but it is him who turns hearts around, this draws us to our knees to pray for anyone who doesn't yet trust in Jesus. Because we know he is the one who turns hearts around. He turns hearts around. He also is sovereign. He orientates our lives. Paul Miller uh, writes a great and really helpful book called A Praying Life. I encourage you to read it. In one of the chapters, he talks about his prayers for his children. He says this, he says, until you're convinced you can't change your child's heart, you're not going to take prayer seriously. He describes praying about one of his children's danger of loving the things of the world a little bit too much. He used to pray 1 John 2:15 for her, that she would not love the world or anything in it. He says in his book, love of the world wasn't an all-consuming thing for his daughter, but it was a danger. And he says, if a ship is off a few degrees, it's imperceptible at first, but over time becomes a vast distance. So he was praying for her. So he wisely says, I was praying to prevent the distance of a heart gone astray. I prayed for little Emily because I couldn't get inside her her heart. Back to 1 Kings 18. Elijah wants to know that God is God and he is the one who turns hearts around. So I think it leads to joyous, hope-filled prayer. I think it also leads this sovereignty of God to a hope-filled, bold, and joyous evangelism, a passion to speak of Jesus. Why? Because we see nothing is too hard for God. No human heart is beyond God's turning. Matthew 28, the end of Jesus' ministry, he declares all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. He is in charge. So we just leave it to him, don't we? And we sit down and enjoy our tea and cake. No. All authority has been given to me, so go and make disciples in all nations. And surely I am with you always. God doesn't turn hearts without human testimony, often. Romans 10 shows us that. Jesus himself tells us that. Jesus is saying, I do the decisive work, but I use you as my means, and I come with you always. And I was chatting to some guys in the minibus on the way back. I was really challenged about this yesterday. Have I given my friends every opportunity to hear about Christ? Do I pray passionately for God to save them? Are there some friends I just think might never turn to Christ? I negotiate them away and go, God couldn't do that. Some of you will know the two Syrian families who have moved recently over to England. I see them quite often. I want to tell them about Jesus, but in my head, I I often go, well, they don't speak English. And my Arabic is really ropey. They've been Muslims their whole lives. Why on earth would they ever turn to Jesus? I got rebuked here yesterday as I looked at this. God is the one who turns hearts around, He is the one who's in charge. Let's not negotiate for people. God is sovereign. Now, before we share in communion together, before we celebrate what Jesus did to make this all possible, to make it possible for God to offer His salvation, we're going to sing. I'm going to invite the guys to come up now. We're going to sing King of Kings. Verse 2, it says this. It says, Earth and heaven worship you, love eternal, faithful and true. Who bought the nations? Who ransomed souls? Brought the sinner near to your throne? All within me cries out in praise. Christian in the room, he bought you. He turned your heart and he can do it for others. He's God, he's the only God. Worship him alone. Take him seriously, point others towards him because anyone worshipping any other God is limping. As Elijah says in verse 37, he is God and he turns our hearts back to him. And as we get to the end of a verse in that song, what is the rightful response to all that? All within me cries out in praise. So let's stand and let's sing before we celebrate communion together.